Good morning. Thank you for reading the scripture. Thanks for the prayer. Thanks for the music. Was that? That was a lot of fun. And Dr. Garrison, what's it like to live a life with that voice? I felt like coming to Jesus just to keep him, you know, talking. Amazing. Thank you. It's, it's, uh, it's wonderful to be here with you this morning. Um, even though my first trip to Asbury was last year, I also have a connection with Asbury going back to the early 90s. Uh, George Hunter, do you guys know him? <laughs> okay. George Hunter came out to our church in Los Angeles, then known as the Church on Brady. And he was there to speak at one of our conferences called the Spare Not Conference on Global Evangelization. And uh, my brother and I were in the back of the church, leaning against the back wall because, well, we're just too fidgety to sit in church. So generally, we stand up in the back uh, when George is about to come up. Now, we were just then, I think it was around 1992 or thereabouts, just then starting to get a view on the postmodern challenge that was emerging. The fact that God was urbanizing the world and bringing the nations to our doorstep was already right before us. And my brother and I in those days would talk about what it would take for Jesus Christ to be known around and throughout the Pacific Rim. And we thought it could take three to 500 years to accomplish that. And we would talk about what is it that we would have to do to actually lay the foundation, right? To, to lay things down correctly so that a movement could spring from East Los Angeles and go to the very ends of the earth. And so there we are, leaning against the back wall of the church, and, and up, up comes George. Now, I, I didn't know who George Hunter was. I don't think my brother knew either. We hadn't yet read any of his books. Um, and so, you know, he walks up, and then he says, uh, he leads with six words. You ready? These are the six words. We are back in apostolic times. My brother and I, we looked at each other, just an eye glance, and a lot of things were happening in that moment, but I can tell you that our hearts jumped in our chests. We were so excited. We didn't even really know what he meant, but we were so excited. <laughs> we, were, we were so excited about it because we knew that we were fully sympathetically vibrating with the guy on the stage. And, uh, and we, just, we just loved that. We knew that we were going to agree with everything he said from there on out. We were back in apostolic times. There were two things that struck us about that particular statement. The first is that it should even have to be said. And the second was that it was said. It, it's such an exciting thing. And every time I think about this particular text of Scripture, I get that same primal feeling, like we're back to something basic. We're back to something fundamental. We're back to something of a primal order. Any sailors here? All right, two. All right, so I am I, not a sailor either, but, but, but I've sailed. A 14-foot catamaran. Anybody, can you get an image in your mind about what that is? A catamaran is the, the dual-hulled sailing craft with a canvas across and a sail in the middle. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? I know we're in the middle of the country, but I've, surely you've seen it on television. 
I went to a retreat at a resort on the west, on the Gulf side of Florida, and they happened to have a sailboat that was available for anybody who was staying there. So I thought, hey, I, I can learn to sail this week, right? So I, so I went out, and I don't know how to sail, but it's a 14-foot catamaran, and it's free, right? That's the magic number, free, zero. And I found a couple of guys, you know, that were walking across the beach, and I knew they had to know how to sail because they had, like, really good tans. You know, so I thought, okay, ask these guys, hey, can you teach me to sail this 14-foot catamaran? And they did, and for two days, it was magic. For those of you who've sailed before, it was magic. When your sail catches the wind, and it raises one of the pontoons up in the air, and then you extend your body over the edge, suspended between sky and sea. And as the ship begins to accelerate, it shakes. And then it becomes still as it begins to, to hit each swell. Magic. And then it catches too much wind, and it flips you over, and into you go to the Gulf of Mexico. And then you swim back to the, sh to the boat, you get on the hull, you right-size it, and you go again. It was amazing. Can you feel it? Well, on the third day, there was a tropical, sure, there was a tropical storm working its way up, you know, south of Florida. But on the third day, I went out to sail. And I went and I, I looked for my buddies, and they were, they were nowhere to be found. In fact, there was nobody on the beach. And I thought, what a waste of wind. So I grabbed the catamaran, I pushed it through the nearshore breakers, and out to sea I went. And it was magic, folks. It was magic. I mean, there were moments when that, that catamaran accelerated and found a place of such stillness that it would rise in the air. Of course, I couldn't see under the, the boat, but it felt like it was leaving the water. And I would flip it and I would dive into the Gulf of Mexico, come back and go again. And I was out there for a long time, and I did not notice what was happening around me. And one moment, I was catching a great ride, I mean a great ride. And I was thrown from the boat, and I was tossed into the Gulf of Mexico, and six feet under I went, and that's not a literal number, it's just kind of like foreshadowing. But anyway, so six feet under I went, and when I came up out of the water, I noticed an environment of changed character. The ocean wasn't flat. It didn't even have small swells. It was, it was rising mountains and falling valleys. The clouds were dark and hanging low with fingers dragging across the face of the deep. And I looked around for my boat. It always flips, right? You swim back to it. And I had been tossed over, but the boat had righted itself. And the wind had caught the sail, and off it went. My personal flotation device, my PFD, safely tied to the mast of the boat. <laughs> Not the sharpest tool. I, I get that in the shed. Then uh, I thought, oh my gosh. As I rose on one of those rising mountains, I see the boat way down the way. And I began that swim. I began to swim to the boat. And you know, swimming in tempestuous waters, is, it's, it's tough. It's hard. And then as I'm swimming, I feel something large brush against my leg. 
And you know, it's like positive attitude. You know, <laughs> what do you do? What do you do? I hope it's a branch, you know, that, that's, that's been pushed, that happens in storms. You know, they, they put branches, get thrown. And so I'm swimming back. To, I don't know how long it took me to get back to the catamaran, but I finally did. I brought myself up, I grabbed that canvas, and I just sucked air, and the air was wet. Everything around me was wet. It was windy. It was violent. There there was very little visibility. I didn't even know which way shore was. Now, I think that in some ways, this is analogous to what it feels like to lead a church for the last 30 years. All of a sudden, we wake up and we realize, wow, when did the environment change? It changed while you were in it. It changed while we were in it. But one of the things that we fail to do, perhaps because in our leadership we are so focused on ancient things, we read ancient texts, we practice ancient rites, we think about ancient things, and so we can barely think about the present, much less the future. And oftentimes, because our focus is on things gone by and the things we've done, we cannot, we do not pay attention. We are not alert to the fact that our environment is changing. First thing I did was I put on my PFD. Because I figured the sailboat was all right on its own. Me, however, I could definitely sink to the bottom. And as I began to look around, I felt safe for a moment And then I realized, I don't know which way to go. I do not know which way to go. And as I'm looking around, uh, rising on a swell, I see a ruby in the mist. Just a twinkling, very faded twinkling. And I looked at it and I blinked my eye because, you know, I did want to see something. And I asked myself, is that a radio tower on shore, or the taillight of a barge headed toward Mexico. Let me pull out my Bible so we can take up from there. On the screen, you should have the first slide, a ruby in the mist. I'm not actually going to look back there. Is that what you see? And so, and the next slide. Go ahead to the next slide. This particular text has a lot of things of interest to me. It's when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. You know, I used to wonder when I was first reading these texts years ago, how could it be that they're standing in front of the resurrected Jesus and still doubt? Right? And then I realized later, 10, 15 years ago, how is it that they're standing in front of the resurrected Jesus and all of them aren't doubting? They should all be doubting. Resurrections aren't normal. So they're all standing there, worshiping him, but some doubted. There should be doubt in this moment because they're seeing something so remarkable, they can't, some of them cannot believe their eyes. August 7th, 1969, Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon. A commentator from those days declared that this was the greatest event in human history. And he was wrong. 
the greatest event in human history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and there are people who doubt we went to the moon. It's so remarkable. I mean, it's, think about it. We went to the moon. You know, it's like, you know, I roll my eyes sometimes because I love the space program. But it's such a remarkable event. There are people who doubt it. There are people who doubt the Holocaust happened. How could something like that happen? It makes sense to question that, doesn't it? I mean, how possibly could human beings do this? Could this happen among us? It's normal then, I think, to doubt the resurrection. In fact, maybe the ones that doubted were the sane ones. Right, the ones who actually were observing themselves, observing something else. They worshipped him, but some doubted. I think that in some ways when um, George Hunter came to Los Angeles in 1992 or three thereabout, and he said, we are back in apostolic times. He was, he was reminding us that there's, there's a sense in which we are often invading new environments in which we don't know what it is we are actually seeing. I love the verse, by the way, that we sang. What was it uh, about chaos and doubts? He, he brings our chaos back to order. Love that. True, yeah? He also breaks our order and brings it to his chaos, out of which he can bring his order. See, we have a, a, a tendency to organize an order, but sometimes the organization and order that we create is not his organization and his order. And sometimes we need chaos. We need tempestuous seas. We need clouds dragging fingers across the, the face of the deep. We need rising mountains and valleys, violent environments for us to finally stop and look for the ruby in the mist. We should not, I, I don't anymore, uh, wonder... Uh, that they doubted. I think that's normal. I wonder about Jesus. What's he thinking? He's, these are the ones he's about to commission to go to the ends of the earth. <laughs> right? You know, I mean, people, you know, come to us and they say, hey, I feel God calling me to, you know, to Hong Kong to reach the city for Christ. And then what do we do? We send them to a psyche eval to make sure they're of sound mind. It's like, I say, skip the psyche valve because we don't want him to know he's crazy. <laughs> we just want to send him. So it's like, it's like I'm thinking, well, you know, it's okay that the disciples doubted. What's Jesus thinking? You know, sometimes I read the scriptures, and you know what? I want to ask Jesus, come on, Jesus, what would Jesus do? And I remember, oh, yeah, that's right. You are Jesus, and you're doing it. And he's always doing something differently than I imagine. Now, it, it's okay, I think, for us not to be able to believe our eyes. And I am convinced that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead by the power of God. But I, I have, you know, I've come to realize that I, the more I know, the less, the more I know, the less I know. Did I say that correctly? Right? In fact... If I keep learning at the same rate, pretty soon I'll know next to nothing. 
and you guys that are students at the seminary, by the time you graduate, you'll be absolutely useless. <laughs> Which is apparently is how Jesus likes them. <laughs> so we can doubt, we can doubt ourselves sometimes. After all, you remember the huge cultural issue that happened around this time last year that almost tore up the social fabric of American society. Go to the next slide. You won't be able to see this, but what color is this dress? <laughs> Do you remember this? Wired Magazine brought in neuroscientists to talk about the science of the color of the dress. We're coming to understand the relationship a little bit better, the relationship between vision and perception and the way we perceive colors. Go ahead into the next uh, slide. It was such a big issue, Kanye and Kim had to go to marital counseling because one saw blue and black and one saw white and gold. Next slide, Taylor Swift. I don't understand this odd dress debate and I feel like it's a trick somehow. I'm confused and scared. I, I have to admit, you know, in a moment of weakness as my son and I were looking at the dress, that I almost slapped the boy because he kept saying it was blue and black. We need each other to see. We need each other to see. Back to the text. Go ahead to the next. So, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. He came to them, the 11. What's interesting to me is, in the beginning of the story, Jesus calls people to follow him, and he makes them his disciples, and now he's calling on his disciples to call upon others and make them disciples. The invitation to discipleship still continues. So in the beginning of the story, Jesus called people. At this new beginning of the story, the 11 would call people. And at this new beginning of the story, we are to call people. Now, here's the beautiful thing. He came to them, the 11, and distributed the responsibility of the discipleship of the nations to all 11, even the not-so-smart ones. Intelligence is not equally distributed among the 11. Virtue, not equally distributed among the 11. Passion, not equally distributed among the 11. Responsibility, equally distributed. You're, you're, you have a responsibility. We have a responsibility. He came to them and said, all authority has been given me. You know, when John F. Kennedy visited NASA in the early 1960s, when he had challenged the nation to send a man to the moon, and I believe we've gone to the moon, just a circle back, I didn't clear that up, close that up, but it went, John F. Kennedy went to NASA in those early days, he stopped a janitor and asked him what he did there, and he said, I'm helping send a man to the moon. Don't you love that? We have to become great, great at distributing responsibility. We have to stop being so needy that we need star status attached to our ordination. 
attached to our education, attached to our charisma, because that is not who Jesus sent. Jesus sent the doubters too. The unremarkable too. That's who he made responsible. We're responsible in this new beginning with the authority of Jesus Christ behind us to invite people to discipleship, to fellowship of Jesus Christ. It's disorienting when you have no idea what time you're supposed to end. What, what time am I supposed to end? Anybody know? 11.52. Thank you very much. I, 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 I think I, Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to miss lunch. Now, there's a lot here that's very hard to see. Now, you know what? I am not like rolling my eyes at the unintelligent. I pretty much count myself among them. Right? I, I know I'm, I'm really sharp at some things. I'm not so sharp at other things. Sometimes, you know, I'm a really fast adapter, and I'm an innovator and creative. And sometimes I, I kind of lag behind others, and I can learn from others. I mean, after all, I still consider myself an atheist who's still surprised by his own conversion. Every morning I get up and I go, gosh, I believe. Jesus is alive. Gosh, what's wrong with you? I'm convinced of it, but I came to faith after being immersed in an environment with faith artifacts. Now, I'll tell you what, I have an advantage in terms of faith artifact over everybody here. You may have grown up in church. I didn't. But I grew up in a country named after the Savior, El Salvador. That's what El Salvador means, the Savior. I grew up in a lot of cities in El Salvador, but I grew up in a particular one, San Salvador. Holy Savior. That's where the city that I grew up in. A lot of streets in the city of San Salvador. I grew up in a particular street. You'll never guess the name. Yes, exactly. Calle de San Salvador, the street of the Holy Savior. <laughs> I grew up on the street of the Holy Savior. Now, my grandmother, I grew up with my grandmother, so my brother. Uh, she would take us to, now we lived right across the street from a park, but she liked to take us to a particular park. It was El Parque de El Salvador del Mundo, the park of the Savior of the world. That's right. And in the middle of the park, <laughs> and in the middle of the park, um, there's a statue of a man in a dress. And I said to my grandmother, Finita, Finita, so who is the man in the dress? And she said, that mijo is El Salvador del Mundo. And I remember my heart jumping in my chest thinking, wow, that sounds like a really important, you know, Job. And in fact, I was going to add a slide of, of the Jesus statue with his hands extended, but it was taken recently, and it looks like he's pointing to a McDonald's. So, and I, I didn't want to, you know, be a part of that. So, it, you know, it, I grew up in the country of the Savior, in the city of the Savior, on the street of the Savior, at the park of the Savior, playing at the feet of the statue of Jesus. It could only have been more obvious if they had just gone ahead and named me Jesus. Then my brother Irwin, who's a very well-known pastor, would have grown up hearing, Irwin, listen to your brother, Jesus. <laughs> which, would have, which would have been a nice story now, but it, it, it isn't. So I don't, roll my, I don't roll my eyes at these guys and think, oh, you know what? Uh, it, it, the, 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 no. All of us need the rest of us to be able to see. And we live in a moment... We do live in a moment. George was right 
in 92. And he's, if he were, I'll just say it for him. We are back in apostolic times. The resurrection of Jesus didn't make the Roman Empire go away. Those 11 still had to sail the tempestuous political seas that caused the crucifixion. And yet, there on that mountain in Galilee, on that day, they looked through the mist of their environment and they saw a ruby. I think that they looked at Jesus, but they saw the future. The scriptures tell us that God has set a day by which he will judge the nations by the man Jesus. And that's who they were looking at, the future. At the end of history, all nations and all states and all people and all powers, all principalities, everything that exists will, will converge at a particular point, And at the end of that point will be the man, Jesus. They looked at Jesus and they saw the future. And every time the environment changes, every time our context changes, every time our situation changes, when there is chaos, we have to look at the ruby in our midst. Jesus Christ, crucified and risen by the power of God. On that day in the Gulf of Mexico, I was happy to discover that it was not a tail light on a barge headed to Mexico. I began to sail the boat back to the light, to the light very carefully because I didn't want to flip because I'd already had a bad experience with that. And I don't know how long it took me to get back, but uh, I beached the catamaran probably 10 feet from where I had taken off. And I got off the catamaran, and I just stuck my nose in the sand. I wanted to breathe sand. <laughs> right? I just... Uh. And so this lady, you know, just basically scanning the sand for coins, you know, walks about by looking at me, you know, as if nothing happened. And I, and I had basically just drowned in the Gulf of Mexico. And on that day, I realized, you know, that... There's a sense in which everything else that we've gained, everything else that we've accumulated, all the, the power of methodology, all the power of the resources that come with an institutional movement, all the power that, that comes from our cognitive knowledge and information that we've gleaned, in the end, when it comes down to it and you are about to die or drown, all that stuff is rubbish. And you look for the ruby, the ruby in the midst, Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead by the power of God. Okay, I'll just ask for the band to come on up. I'm looking forward to being here with you guys for the next couple of days.